Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are are here with us. I'm Nathan, campus pastor here at the Olathe campus of Christ Community Church. Uh, Many of us are aware, if you're a guest with us this morning, let me just kind of fill you you in a little bit. We are in a sort of a a journey together this year through the entire story of Scripture. Uh, We began in January in Genesis, and we will end in December uh, in, in Revelation. So this morning we are right smack dab in the middle of the book of Numbers. Many of us are reading along with uh, this as well, so you're, you're ready, ready to jump right in. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we look at this story. God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we thank you that you are a God who continues to speak to us. God, I pray that we would be um, people who believe, um, even in the midst of great difficulty, uh, that no matter what we face, uh, no matter uh, the things that we struggle with, God, I pray that we would trust in you and that that would happen through your son, Jesus, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Well, this this past December, Kelly and I, we had, uh, really we had quite a scare. Um, It turned out to be nothing, uh, but it didn't feel like nothing at the time. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever had a more concentrated two-week period of worry my entire life. Um, The doctors had to rule out cancer. Um, It's no big deal, they said, you know, don't worry about it, yada, 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 yada. I'm sorry, cancer? And I know know many of you have have heard those same words, and frankly, much, much worse. And and for us, I mean, it turned out really, truly to be nothing. Everything is is completely fine and and normal. And yet, in that that moment, boy, did I worry. Uh, Quickly jumping to to worst-case scenarios. I mean, what about... What about our kids? What about our our plans as our facade of control quickly smashed to the ground? It's easy to trust God when you have nothing to fear. But what about then? And, you know, we began to think, you know, what what if the news is bad? Then what? Uh, Then do we we keep trusting? Will we keep trusting in God or, or will we end up hating him? Will we believe that he is good even if everything else falls apart? Will I even want to believe? We don't often think of it in those terms, do we? We usually think, you know, either we believe or we don't believe. But when is the last time you've asked yourself that question? Do you really want to believe? Do you even want to? Again, for me, it was sort of battling through this in my, in my own mind. Will I even want to believe that God is good if everything else falls apart? Not just simply would I, but would I, would I even want to? And there's all kinds of, of things in our lives that can cause us to, to ask such questions, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a trial or some difficult circumstance. So that, that, that's often the case for many of us. I mean, it could be simply that you just don't like what God has to say about your your marriage, or your sex life, or your money. And you just would rather figure it out. Do you really want to believe, or is it just easier not to? Or maybe it comes to some, some other area in your life that's just really hard to trust God with, uh, with, your, with your kids, or with, with your own sense of loneliness, or your, or your work. Or, I mean, every one of us faces this so easily. 
Maybe, maybe you wouldn't even consider yourself much of a, of a believer in anything. You know, that, that's, just, that's, not, that's not who you are. And, um, you know, you wouldn't, wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Have you asked yourself, do, do I even want to believe? Because often enough, our problem isn't just that we don't believe God. It's that we don't even really want to. And it, it doesn't get much worse than that, because that question really reveals what's in here. I mean, we could, we could debate the, the worst sin, right, till we're, till we're blue in the face, but honestly, I think what we see in this book is that there is nothing worse than disbelief. Nothing worse than a heart that refuses to trust And so ask yourself, where is disbelief most likely to attack my soul? And and maybe if you're you're taking notes, maybe, maybe write down this question. Do I even want to believe? Because for the Israelites 3,500 years ago, uh, the answer was a very resounding nope. And they refused to trust and in fact, they, they make plans to, to return back to the land of Egypt. They would rather die than believe God. Now, if you've been with us since the start of the year, we've, we're beginning to, to pick up a little bit of speed, haven't we? I mean, we've been through Genesis, Exodus, all the sort of the weird stuff about sacrifice and Leviticus, and now we're already on into to Numbers. And regardless of the reading plan, if you're reading with us, you've chosen, uh, we're all going to be reading this story uh, this week. In fact, either today or or tomorrow, depending on the plan that you've chosen. So go ahead and and turn to Numbers 13. If you have your Bible, turn to it. We'll have have it on the slides as well. But if you have one with you, go ahead and get there. Numbers 13. And really in these three books here together, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God's people are homeless. They've left Egypt, but they haven't yet arrived in the promised land. That happens later when we get to the book of Joshua next month. It'll take us a month, but it took them 40 years. And we'll see why it took them so long in a moment. Now, if the story of the Exodus, right, the the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues, if that story was the high point then this story this morning, I mean, it's pretty much one of the low points. You, you can't get much more sort of rock bottom as God's people than this. They succumb to a temptation that is very real for every one of us. They refuse to believe. Now, we, we pick up our, our story with God's people literally right on the edge of the promised land. Now, if you, if you think back or if you're familiar with the story, they, they crossed the, the Red Sea right near, near Mara when they left Egypt. And from there, they traveled down into this wilderness where they, they grumbled, right? And God gives them manna and he gives them rest there in that place. From there, they went to, to Mount Sinai. That's, that's where God gave them the Ten Commandments. And they, they stayed there for quite some time. And now they've made the long trip from Mount Sinai all the way up north to Kadesh Barnea. You can see kind of the, the route that they probably took. 
And so now, in the next map, they are right in this place called Kadesh Barnea. That's where our, our story happens. And they are literally on the cusp of God's promises. All of the green there is the land that God was promising to them. They're there. I mean, imagine, right, all of the joy of having finally arrived and the, the delight, the anticipation. I mean, I get excited after a long car trip. And they've been journeying together now for probably about 16 months. And here they are. After nearly a year and a half in the desert, God's promises stand there right in front of them. Everything that they've been waiting for, ready to be fulfilled. Almost. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And so, so Moses does. He, he sends them out, 12 spies in all, and they take 40 days to explore these 500 miles there in the land of Canaan. And it was awesome. I mean, the things there that they, they saw, and, and grapes, right? It's kind of this, this picture that they give. Grapes so large, so massive. I mean, it says in verse 23 that they, they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. Like, like those are some big stinking grapes, right? I mean, just imagine that. And in fact, I mean, this is such an important thing. This symbol is even used in modern-day Israel now. Uh, I mean, here's a, here's a postage stamp, right? This is something that they continually go back now thousands of years later to say, wow, look at this incredible land. I mean, here they, they are receiving God's gift for them. This is our new home. And they, I mean, they'd seen all the miracles, right? Everything that we've been working through together, they, they witnessed all of them. They had heard all of the promises, all the, all the Israelite boys and girls grew up with bedtime stories about God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. They knew all of it, and now here they are, ready to receive them. It's almost as if God has given them the green light to re-enter the Garden of Eden. And all they got to do is walk through. Well, get ready for one of the greatest anti-climaxes in history. Because essentially, they say to God, you know what? I think we're going to pass. Yahweh, it's been fun. Thanks, thanks God. I mean, it's, this has been a great journey. We've loved the desert. Uh, but it's really time that we, we need to head back to Egypt. Starts to, word starts to get out among the people, uh, and they begin to, to make these plans to journey back. And, and it's true. I mean, what it says in, in verse 28, here's, here's why they want to head back. It says that the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And, and there's evidence of that. I mean, archaeologists have dug up some of these ancient Canaanite cities from that same time period. Uh, I mean, here's, here's some of those ruins. And I mean, these were major cities, incredible places. In fact, Hazer, one of these cities, that's, that's this city. The walls defending it were 24 feet thick. 
I mean, this is some big walls, right? And the people of Israel now, they are terrified at the very thought. Of course they are. And they don't want to believe those bedtime stories anymore. And frankly, they don't even want to believe the things that they had seen with their own eyes. And the Red Sea, did it, I mean, did it really part? It's been a while now. I know I was there, but I mean, surely there's, there's got to be an explanation. And it's this manna stuff, right, that keeps showing up. I mean, there's got, there's got to be a reasonable explanation for all this, right? Friends, the first thing we learn from this story is that disbelief is always possible. It doesn't matter how many promises you've heard, how many miracles you've seen, disbelief, a refusal to believe is always just around the corner. It can happen when we're afraid, and that'll, that'll test our trust or are worried when, when, when circumstances compound in on us. It happens when we don't like what God happens to say. I mean, who gives you the right to tell us how to live? For some of us, I mean, for some of us, we, we've never really believed. And maybe, maybe you think to yourself, if God would just prove it, right? I mean, if he just sort of show up in my life, then I would believe. But really? Are you sure? Uh, because it didn't work for the Israelites. God had shown up for them over and over and over again. And yet they persist in their disbelief. Because if you don't want to believe, you'll never believe. Because we know, deep down, we know that if we believe really believe that God is going to require something of us, just like he did for the Israelites. Disbelief is always possible. And then look what, what happens next. Here's how it all breaks down. So they were, there were 12 spies, right? Uh, two of them were good. That's Joshua and Caleb. They're, they're ready to receive the land. They believe the promises of God. Uh, the other 10 spread their disbelief like cancer among the people. And here's what it says in chapter 13, verse 30. This is Caleb talking, one of the ones who believed. He begins, he says, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. The land is, is useless, is what they're saying. It's, it's not worth it. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're, they're giants. And, and we saw there that the Nephilim, these, are this, these people that were almost... Con- considered of sort of legendary status for their size. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. They thought we were grasshoppers too. So two kinds of people here that spy the land, those who believe and those who didn't. They all saw the same things. They all knew that it wouldn't be easy. And yet one group of them, those who disbelieve, all they can see is what they are able to accomplish. Whereas Joshua and Caleb, those who believed, they could see what God could accomplish. One commentator writes, he says, significantly, two men could see the exact same sights, the same grapes, the same men, the same land, the same cities. One can come away singing in faith, and the other is filled with a sense of certain doom. 
Ultimately, faith or unbelief does not spring from circumstances or environment, but from our hearts, which God must change. And the disbelieving spies, then, they actually change the report they give to the people. They alter the facts of their situation in order to match their disbelief. Guys, the land really isn't that great. It's not, it's not nearly, it's not worth it, that's for sure. God, he must have been lying to us. I mean, do, you, do you see it here? I mean, it's something we, we don't often like to admit but disbelief is a choice. Disbelief is not a, a lack of facts, but a lack of faith. John Orberg writes, disbelief is very different from uncertainty. Uncertainty is a matter of intellect. That, that's, you know, we all, we all deal with uncertainty. Disbelief, though, he says, is a settled decision of the will. And we all struggle with doubts, don't we? I mean, that's, that's, that's inevitable, right? I mean, there's nothing in the realm of faith that comes with certainty. That's why it's called faith, right? I mean, am I, am I certain that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? No, I'm not certain. Am I certain that, that God is, is absolutely certain that God is going to care for me even in the midst of the worst trials? No, I am not certain, but I believe and I believe with, with what I believe are, are good reasons, but it's a choice that I make. It's a choice I have to make every single day that today, yes, God, I am going to choose to believe you. Or we choose disbelief. I mean, those are, of course, the, the two options here. And in this story, their, their disbelief is prompted by fear. But it can come from anywhere. Bitterness, loss, guilt, anything that convinces you that God just isn't really worth trusting. Before you know it, your world revolves around proving your own disbelief, just like the spies did. I mean, what, is, what does God know about my habits? What does, he, what does he know about my health or my needs or my family or my changing circumstances around me? What does he really know? Do you, do you want to believe and if you've never believed, could it just be that you don't want to? I mean, if God is real, if Jesus is who he said he is, then we have to reckon with him. Could that at least be part of the reason why you don't believe? I mean, yes, belief is a gift from God. But disbelief is a choice that we make. So the word begins to, to get out among the people. You know, it's, it spreads out that there is no humanly possible way for the Israelites to receive this promised land, which, I mean, really is true, right? There, there is no humanly possible way, and the people all start to, to panic. They begin to freak out. It says in chapter 14, verse 2, that all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Nothing new there, right? We, we've seen them grumbling before, uh, but then, then they say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. I mean, they're, they're worried about their families, right? Reasonably. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
They've said that before. But then it's just really been more a matter of, of theory, right? But now they begin to make plans. And in verse 4, they say to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We're done with this guy, Moses. Let's go back to where we came from. It'd be better if we were dead. It'd be better if we were still slaves. I mean, they actually believe that the hell they left in Egypt would be better than believing God's promises. And they begin to, to make plans to return. I mean, they, they refuse to believe God, but it's not that they just stop believing in anything. I mean, that's, that's not even possible. They refuse to believe God, but they begin to believe that life in Egypt is better. They believe that Egypt offers them greater things than God does. And that their salvation, their their joy, their satisfaction, all of their security, that it's going to be found back in that land and not with this God. Really, that's that's the third thing I think we, we learn about disbelief in this story. Disbelief in one thing always equals disbelief in something else. Disbelief in one thing always equals belief in something else. No one ever just sort of stops believing. We just end up believing different things. G.K. Chesterton writes, he says, if, if people cease to believe in God, they do not believe in nothing, but in anything. Every one of us believes in something. I mean, really, even if you refuse to believe in anything, it doesn't matter if you're a, a, an atheist or a pluralist or a Christian. We all hold to our tightly held theological beliefs about God. Beliefs that we cannot prove. And we live by faith. Every one of us. Regardless of your, your background, your upbringing, we all live by faith. The question is faith in what? Maybe, maybe you're not as as extreme as, you know, the atheist or the pluralist or whatever. But at the end of the day, this is a question we all have to wrestle with. Do you, do you believe that God is going to keep you safe or your bank account is going to keep you safe? Really? Do you believe that you are going to keep your kids safe or do you believe that God's going to keep them safe? Do you believe that, that your rules for your life or, or lack of rules for your life is what's going to make you happy? Or do you believe that God's rules are going to make you happy? Every, every belief comes with options. And to disbelieve one thing is simply to believe something else. Do you believe that Yahweh gives what he promises? Or do you believe that life in Egypt is better? That being a slave is better? You know, I think in, in many ways, this is why God is so concerned that we believe in him. And maybe if this is kind of a newer thing for you, it's like, why does God care so much? It's like, like he's some, you know, insecure little kid who's just desperate for approval. I mean, it's kind of like that part in, in the play Peter Pan where, you know, Tinkerbell is sick and the whole audience has to cheer. I believe in fairies, right? Just to, to make, anybody know that story? Okay. Okay. Well, it happens, right? But that's, that's not God, right? So why, why does God care so much if we believe in him? I think in many ways, at least part of it, is because he knows we're going to believe in something. And he's the one who made us. He knows that belief in him is the only thing that's actually going to bring us to the the point of joy and satisfaction that we most desperately long for, that belief in him leads us to flourishing. Belief in anything else leads us to desperation. And how it must grieve him 
when we believe lies. Every one of us is a believer. What are you a believer in? Do you want to believe God? So Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb are kind of the, the good guys in this, this story. They begin to, to plead with this quickly forming mob around them. I mean, this land, they say, it's, it's good beyond good. Are, are you people listening? I mean, they plead with him, verse, not, verse 9, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people. The Lord is with us. But rather than listening to their leaders, people actually pick up large stones in order to smash in their heads. They want to stone them. Disbelief refuses to be wrong. And just before they're all murdered by this mob, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. All, all of a sudden, I mean, picture this incredible mob around these four people trying to plead with the people, right? Trying to plead with them. This incredible mob, and all of a sudden, God himself shows up. Oops. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. They despise me, he says. People would rather die in the wilderness than follow me. Disbelief doesn't just refuse God's gifts. Disbelief despises God. And it's like, in many ways, that these people, they're all standing there right on the doorstep of heaven. All they've got to do is walk through to experience all that God has promised to them. And yet sort of the, the camera zooms in on these people slowly turning their backs, obstinately walking away, muttering under the breath, you know what, I think we'd prefer hell. And the funny thing about God, he has a way of giving us exactly what we ask for. You want to die in the wilderness? I mean, that, that could be arranged, guys. And so the, the ten spies, uh, they, I mean, God, God kills them. Seems a little harsh, maybe, uh, except for the fact that they're the ones who spread this cancer throughout the people. You can only spit in God's face so many times. What about the rest of them? 14, verse 28, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing... I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, 
who you said would become a prey, the ones that you said, well, we can't go to the land because they're going to die. Your little ones I'll bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And for 40 years they wander until this generation of grumblers dies off. It's one year for every day the spies spied out the land of promise. 40 years. And really, if you, if you want to know what the book of Numbers is about as, you, as you're reading this week, you know, essentially Numbers is about grumbling and digging graves. It's about what happens when God's people choose to live by fear rather than faith. And it's ugly. It's heartbreaking. But big or small, this is what disbelief does. Disbelief chooses death over life. We refuse the the good God offers us and run instead towards the things most likely to destroy us, and God gives us what we ask for. C.S. Lewis said it so clearly. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and there are those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Do you want to believe? Or, or, or do we prefer the death in choosing our own way? If God is the last thing you want, God is the last thing you'll get. And friends, disbelief is crouching behind the door for every one of us. Whether it's bad news from the doctor, worries, difficulties in your circumstance, whether it's commands you don't particularly like, or maybe, maybe an entire lifestyle built on disbelief, easily, every one of us can choose death. You may not think that this story applies to you. You might hear it and like, well, I, I believe. I, that's, not, that's not me. Well, good. Hope, hopefully not. But it could, could it be that for you or for me, it's just really that God hasn't asked us yet to take the promised land? That, that whatever trial, whatever hardship is still yet ahead for us, what then? Will you still want to believe even then? Now, you might be struck with the harshness of God's punishment in this story. Yeah, I've got to be honest, I'm not. In fact, what shocks me more is his lenience. Because God said to Moses, right? Remember back in, in verse 12, God said, I'm just going to do away with all these people. I, I'm just, I am done with the whole lot of them. And I'm going to start over with you, Moses. We're going to begin again. It's like God is, is declaring a divine mulligan. He's going to begin his redemptive promises over again with a fresh and new start. But he doesn't. Why not? I mean, that's, that's what his people deserve. That's what, that's what we deserve for our disbelief. We despise our maker, and yet we live. Why? Because disbelief doesn't have to have the last word. You see, disbelief is only defeated by love. 
Before God annihilates his people, Moses speaks to God on their behalf. He basically says to God, you know, with all, with all due respect, God, if you do this, if you destroy them, you will be a laughingstock among the nations. Uh, the people, are, they're going to look at you and they're going to, who is this God who just rescued his people just to destroy them? And besides God, again, with all due respect, you promised. And then he reminds God who he is. Chapter 4, verse 18 This is Moses talking to God. He says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please, he says, pardon the iniquity of this people. Not because they deserve it, Not because they're really sorry and they're going to do better next time. No reasons like that. He says, forgive them because of the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people over and over and over again since we left Egypt. Moses reminds God of his loving kindness. Did God forget? No. Does, does Moses talk God out of his judgment? It's kind of a weird conversation, isn't it, right? We kind of we wrestle with this as we, as we, as we think through this, this story, but don't forget, God is a person, completely unlike us and yet like us still. And even though God never changes his mind, he condescends to interact with us just as a person would, in relationship and, and just as we pray to God, right, and, and ask him to do certain things, Moses, essentially, he does the same. And even though we don't understand how God interacts with us when we make those requests, we believe that he does. And Moses says to God, God, I know who you are. Be who you are. You you are forgiving and loving and faithful to your promises. And God says, okay. He punishes the guilty, but he preserves his promise. Disbelief is defeated by love. So does that make Moses the hero of this story? You know, he came to the people's rescue and made it all happen. I don't think so. Because frankly, if we keep reading the story a few chapters later, we're going to see Moses, he's not all that he's cut out to be. I mean, Moses himself isn't allowed to enter the promised land because of his, his own disobedience towards God. Moses was quite a decent guy, but he's no hero. We need someone better than Moses, don't we? I mean, we, we also need someone who will intercede on our behalf, who will, who will stand Before God, in our defense, even though we deserve nothing, one who would also be at the the center of of pain and iniquity, one who would be despised like Moses, and the people would try to stone him as well, and they wouldn't just try to stone him, they would crucify him. But this hero wouldn't simply remind God of his love, he would be love incarnate. 
And he wouldn't just plead for our forgiveness, he would die for our forgiveness, and he would take our place in the wilderness. For while we were still sinners, enemies of God, dead in our disbelief, God proved his love to us. Jesus gave his life for us. It says in the Gospel of John, this first verse is... is, one of the most familiar ones for us. I'm going to read it and then read the verses that follow. But you know, you know how it begins, for many of us anyway. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it continues, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever disbelieves who does not believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Do you want to believe? The only cure for our disbelieving hearts is to be so enraptured, so gripped by a love of a God so amazing that the shackles of disbelief begin to fall away. A God who would love us so much that he himself, in ways we can't even begin to understand, would come to this earth, that he would die in our place and offer us forgiveness and life, that he would be raised again, defeating all that is evil, all that is sinful, even defeating the brokenness that lives in me. Ask yourself, where am I most susceptible to disbelief? And what, what are those areas? Is it with his commands or worries or distractions, various fears? Where are you most susceptible? And where do we need to repent? And as we continue to struggle with disbelief, every one of us, in various situations, it's going to look different in all of our circumstances, but all of us will struggle to some degree to the day we die. Ask God to give you belief. Ask him for it daily. And I've I've got to tell you, the, the older I get, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I interact with hurting people, the more I pray, God, help me believe. Help us believe. I mean, truly, there, there is no prayer that I offer more for myself or for my kids as they, as they grow up or for, the, the, for all of you. I mean, when, I mean, some of you know this. When I come and pray with you at the hospital or, or when, when we sit together in my office and we're you know, crying together over the pain and brokenness, the thing that I pray most often, God, help us believe. God, help us believe that you are good. Help us to trust you even in the midst of all of this because it gets really hard. We need to ask him daily for it. And we run to the one who never lets us go. Because it's in his arms of love that that this hardened heart of disbelief begins to melt away. And in Jesus, we find the joy of believing. God help us. Let's pray.